Welcome to the Brighter Side of Ed podcast. I am your host, Dr. Lisa Richardson-Hassler, here to enlighten and brighten the classrooms in America through focused conversation on important topics in education. In each episode, I discuss problems we as teachers and parents are facing and what people are doing in their communities to fix it. What are the variables and how can we duplicate it to maximize student outcomes? In this episode, I focus on the professor as a variable. How can a professor create great educational leaders for school communities? Dr. Carla Sparks is on today's show to discuss how her positive leadership approach is helping shape environments across school communities. She is the Educational Leadership Program Director at the Florida Regional Center Educational Leadership Studies Department, National College of Education at National Lewis University. In her free time, she chairs the dissertation committee, which is how we met, and is an author. Most recently, she co-authored the book, Be the Manatee, with Dr. Sarah Lucas. Welcome to the show, Carla. Thank you, Lisa. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we begin? Sure. I think the first thing um, that's relevant is that I'm really a lifelong learner. And I know a lot of people use that term freely, but in my case, It really is true. I remember learning from my mother in my earliest memories. Uh, One fun thing, I can remember when I was five years old, she taught me how to play gin rummy on a footstool. (laughs) And she said, now you have to beat me and I will not let you win. And she didn't. And so I think she instilled in me from an early age, the importance of following the rules, playing hard, playing to win, being competitive. That perseverance, right, is what we want to instill in all our students. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I I think I I have a lot of perseverance thanks to my mom and her early teaching of me. Um, But I'm still learning new things. And um, I'm learning how to do this podcast today. (laughs) It's my first time. So thank you for teaching me today. And I just continue to learn new practices in education, even though I've been in the field for more than 40 years. um, I just really feel like it's important to stay open to um, what the best practices are, how things are changing in society, and just really trying to be the best educator I can be. And I have been a career educator, and I use that term um, a little bit uh, loosely because I really would say that education is my calling um, more than it is a career. But I guess for the for the rest of the world, it is really a career because I've been doing this for decades. I've taught or tutored all grades K through 12 and adult learners, then graduate students, and now doctoral candidates. <laughs> While all of this is really important to me on a professional level, my family is really the center of my life and they keep me grounded. Absolutely. Your your experience, the breadth and depth of your knowledge and experience is, is very impressive. As a matter of fact, at one point you studied the neuroscience behind single gender education and then became the supervisor of single gender programs for Hillsborough County Public Schools in 2011. Can you tell us more about this study and then the schools that resulted from your research? Yes, I would say the study of neuroscience related to the differences 
between the brains of boys and girls structurally, chemically, and um, in information processing has been probably the most exciting research I've done. And I, I got to do, you know, the, the traditional um, empirical research on the topic. And then I got to do some action research as well. And um, some of my own doctoral work was based on that research. So I was tasked as an administrator in Hillsborough County Public Schools in 2011 to oversee the opening of something really unique. We opened an all boys public middle school, grades six through eight, and an all girls public middle school, grades six through eight. They were about three miles apart geographically in uh, the city of Tampa, Florida. And so when you separate boys and girls in a public setting for an academic reason, you have to really follow the Title IX regulations. And so one of my responsibilities was to make sure that everybody involved was educated on Title IX and that I had to monitor uh, the fact that Title IX was being observed and adhered to, to the letter of the law. Okay. In addition, um, it was really important from an educational standpoint to make sure that the schools were successful because the idea of the school was to separate the boys and girls to create a learning environment that would increase academic achievement, character development, attendance in school, and improve behavior. And I conducted formal studies year after year, all the years that I was involved in that initiative. And they demonstrated through a gold standard of measurement that those schools were outperforming all the middle schools in the district at that time was 45. Um, and and it, we eliminated all the other variables. Many people, naysayers, you know, will say, oh, well, it's because you did this or because you did that, or they were one of the first schools to have one-to-one -one iPads or technology. Right. And when we did the gold standard measurement, we eliminated all the variables except the environment of single gender. And that, therefore, that was the, the um, factor behind all of the success that the, the schools were having, and they continue to thrive today. So you still, you're still involved in that, that project in those schools, right? Because um, with being the supervisor, are you able to like go back in there? And then um, in any way, uh, do you help with like the development or anything that, that happens with your staff? And are you still involved with them? Only as, um, as a guest. Okay. at this point in time, because I, I retired from that school district. <laughs> that is um, true. But I, I still have connections there because my daughter is, at this point, a teacher in one of those schools. Oh. And um, the principals are still working, and I had a very close in relationship with them. And yeah. so from time to time, they will call me to be a guest speaker or to attend a special event and uh, one of the schools just got a new principal because the former one was promoted to a, a higher level of overseeing middle schools at the district. And so I um, offered to her my services and training or whatever else that right. she did. 
your expertise in that field for sure. Yeah. And that, that brings me to then your, your unique leadership style, which you definitely do have. And that really does um, influence positively the educational leaders that you help create in the doctoral program. But not only there, also like with the, the school system, the schools at um, Hillsborough County. And I liked um, how you, you call it growing educational leaders um, instead of creating you grow them. So how would you describe the process of growing educational leaders and why do you use that approach? In my role, I try to validate the leadership qualities that the students bring to their program at the doctoral level. I, I share with the students at the beginning of their program that they are all leaders um, at one level or another because they're there in the program. And sometimes people are what we call informal leaders. That's somebody that other people want to follow and want to emulate, but they don't have a formal leadership title like principal or executive director. They may be, um, they may be a classroom teacher, they may be a paraprofessional, but they are the person that other people look up to and ask questions and want to be like. So I start there with validating the, the experiences that, that my students bring to the program, to the classroom. I think that's really important to in order to grow leaders. Um, they have already had the beginning of their experience. Some of the students that I receive at the doctoral level are already wearing those formal titles and they are looking to do more. And so I think that it's really important, just like we do when children enter kindergarten, they don't, don't all come in at the same learning level. So doctoral students are not different. Adult learners at any level are not really different than kindergarten students. And I try to always keep that in mind. The same strategies that you use, starting with meet the students where they are and grow them to the next level and the next level, as far as you can grow them in the time that you have with them is really important. That's exactly what we do with kindergarten students. So I, I teach my educators who are in my classroom to think like that and to realize that it's all just like kindergarten. You just have to change the vocabulary. Instead of saying line leader, maybe you say school leader or <laughs> district leader. <laughs> I think it's really important too to understand the difference between teaching and shepherding. Mm. And I think if you wanna grow leaders, you have to be a shepherd. Um, there, are, there are really fabulous teachers who are great classroom instructors. They do care about their students, but they're not going to become you know, lifelong friends. They are going to teach for that season of time. And then there are shepherds, and those are people who are teachers but they make a commitment to students that they're gonna stay with them over a pretty long period of time, like in a doctoral program, which is multiple years. And so if you take on like a dissertation committee chair role, you're making a commitment to stay as long as that student is still studying and work with that person. That's a shepherding role. And not all teachers are shepherds. And so I think it's really important to recognize the difference 
And one of the things that I've done in leading the um, educational leadership program at National Lewis University in Florida is to identify among the, my faculty that I lead, who are those who are teachers and who are those who are shepherds? Some people are both, but I make sure now that everybody who is chairing a dissertation is a shepherd. And the, the result has been our most recent data show that 100% of our doctoral students graduated last year who were who were supposed to graduate last year. And that's so amazing. That is that's that's a statistic that's pretty uh, remarkable. It is. I mean, you, you can't beat a hundred percent. I mean, that's, that's, you, you hit the ceiling. And so that's why, you know, talking to you about what is it that makes being able to, you know, to lead leaders, you know, all the way to that finish line through that length of period, like you were talking about, it's not just for a season, it's for, for a long length of time that, that involves years of study and perseverance and commitment that you place on your on your shoulders and you see them through to the finish line. And so I have a couple of things actually. So one is when you were talking about growing educational leaders and um, and the, the bringing them up to the level, it brings me to that word disequilibrium, which you used a lot within the program, that stretching of, um, of a learner to your, your, you know, you come in at one level, like in kindergarten, then you're being stretched, you know, out to grow. And so that just reminds me that was a word that was used often and, and definitely do feel the disequilibrium within the program, that stretching and that growing. But then also when you talk about being a shepherd, um, it, it it reminds me of these characteristics that you possess as a shepherd that I would call um, a mentor. And so being a mentor, being that shepherd um, is one of your strengths. And not everybody wants to have that um, on their on their shoulders. Not everyone wants that um, commitment. But you take it with grace and with stride. And anyone that really wants to to um, be uh, in that position with you, you welcome them, which is unique. And so that's one of those practices that um, that I think is very strong for your success is embracing the role of a mentor. But then also some other things that you did that were very unique were weekly check-ins. And uh, you were very consistent and dependable with those weekly check-ins where you um, were listening with empathy to your students' needs. Um, you addressed their successes, their challenges. And one of my favorites was the removal of barriers. You are someone that uh, said, okay, well, this is, this is a challenge. This is a barrier. How do we remove that barrier? It's like creating a, a roadmap with your student. And then you would set those goals, those small goals, many small goals along those those years of being able to work with the student all the way to the finish line but I feel like one of the the strengths was setting up those small goals and then celebrating the small wins which I loved with your um, upbeat song and your pink boa which was one of your signatures right you would you would come in with your boa and um, and that just made it very exciting you really felt like you were celebrating 
And, um, and also you would send out inspirational quotes of the day, which I felt like just really kept that positive, inspirational, you know, environment that you were, that even though through the distance, you were reaching out every day to inspire and to promote positivity. And so in your book, you, you kind of take that to the next level and you describe resonant leadership practices, which I think you are the embodiment of, um, can you talk about what it means to be a resident leader? Sure. I learned about resident leaders by reading a book by authors Boyatzis and McKee. So to give credit, um, I, I didn't create that term. Um, I learned it from them. And what it means is to be in tune with the people who are around you and to manage your own emotions so that you can manage others' emotions. It's really important to understand that change is inevitable. And sometimes we cause change intentionally, but sometimes change happens to us. It's manufactured by other people who have more authority than we do, or it happens naturally by um, mother nature or whatever the case may be, change will come. And it brings a sense of loss. And that is that word that you mentioned, Lisa, disequilibrium. I really love that word because it's important to know (laughs) that 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 is how people feel when they're going through a period of change. And it could be even good change. I was reflecting on this and thinking about when we bought our new house that we currently live in, it it was definitely an upgrade. But when we went to the closing of that sale and I handed over the keys to the house where I raised my children, it brought a tear to my eye. And I became a little emotional about that moment because there was a sense of loss. That place where we had lived for so long and built memories was now being given to someone else and we were going to live in a whole new situation. And so, you know, to be able to understand that people in a good change, a bad change, a neutral change, they're all going to feel a sense of loss and feel that disequilibrium. And so we have to be ready as leaders to manage our emotions, to maintain an even keel so that we can help people through that sense of loss. That's a really, really important part of leading change. And that's, that's the focus of my work really, is teaching educators how to lead change, not just lead period, but lead change because we're always trying to improve education. In class, you taught about future educational leaders need to lead change through the heart of leadership. And then in your book, you talk a lot about the mind of leadership. Can you tell us the story behind your book, Be the Manatee, and how the use of animal metaphors can help guide educational leaders? Yes, so Be the Manatee is, it it has been a labor of love. And it was born in a dissertation conversation with one of my weekly meetings with a student, Um, now Dr. Sarah Lucas, uh, was sharing with me some story about her work, her her daytime job as an educational leader, and um, how it related to her dissertation. And she was going through a very difficult time at work and was very discouraged. And she said to me one day, 
Um, I guess I just have to be the manatee. Well, the Florida manatee is, is one of Sarah's favorite animals, and I didn't know what she meant when she said that. I asked her, what does that mean? And she said, well, the manatee has no natural predators. And because the manatees are herbivores, they don't prey. So be the manatee is another way of saying, well, sometimes you just have to go with it. You know, don't let anybody hurt you and don't hurt anyone else and just, you know, make your way through the process. And that's true. There are times when we have to just bear up. And as you use the word persevere earlier. And another thing about manatees is that they um, sometimes swim to warmer waters. And so sometimes, professionally and personally, we just have to move on to warmer waters. So that was how we came up with the idea of Be the Manatee. And we started talking more about other animals and um, metaphorically how they exemplify leadership qualities in people some animals have negative qualities some animals <laughs> have positive qualities and we decided that when she finished her dissertation we would start writing a book together and you know we became friends through that relationship even though in age we are 30 years apart um but but we call each other our friend and um and so we wrote about the manatee and 11 other animals that represent examples and non-examples of good leadership. Excellent. And there's going to be a sequel? Maybe? <laughs> I'm talking about a sequel. I've already identified uh, several animals that I'd like to write about, including the woodpecker and... Um, the dolphin, the rat, <laughs> yeah. and they, because they uh, exemplify some qualities that we didn't discuss about in the, in Be the Manatee. And so for, for the listeners at home, I actually am wearing butterfly earrings right now. And this is because when reading the book, um, I, I was able to identify with the butterfly and uh, it, it, we actually guided me through the mental process of a experience that I had been going through in the last couple of years. And it just kind of helped me realize um, maybe a different perspective of how I'm flapping my wings or how I have in the past. And I kind of embraced that. And it gave me the mindset to really um, look at it differently, face it, and then kind of carry through. So um, I thought that was really important. I saw these earrings, grabbed them, I wore them. And uh, so it kind of is a nice little inspirational visual to help me uh, guide through. And so uh, I recommend that when reading this book, it's kind of nice to be able to see yourself in these different educational uh, leadership or, and not even just education, but leadership roles and, and how we're going through those and that mindset to really kind of help us consider different perspectives and, um, and then placing them in your mind and then being able to, to kind of to persevere. So I, I really found some inspiration to that. So I'm wearing them today. And, and I want to reflect back on those, those leadership practices that you discussed while in your book and the qualities that leaders possess, and then also considering your unique traditions and how all those things contribute to your students' success. Do you think that your future educational leaders carry on some of those characteristics and they replicate them when they become principals and district leaders in their own school environments? 
I do, Lisa. I really do think that they they carry forward the lessons, and there are a couple of reasons why I think that. One, I carried forward the lessons that I learned from my professors, and I'm practicing those things, and they've been effective with my students, with me, um, with loved ones. So you can transcend just you know your work environment with these practices, and I. I also um, hear back from students who've graduated quite often, like you. Like me. (laughs) I don't let you go. (laughs) I keep pulling you back, Carla. (laughs) And as a shepherd, I love to be able to carry on the relationship, even though it changes after people graduate, you know, and and we become friends and, and colleagues and things of that nature. But I I get reports back from students about the things that they are trying and the experiences that they are having. And I've had a few people contact me since we released Be the Manatee in August and identifying with a a certain animal, as you did about the butterfly. I had another um, uh, colleague who said he is currently the bowerbird. Um, he's a new principal at a new school and he is building that nest and making it shiny. And that's the Bowerbird (laughs) chapter. And so it's been really fun to hear from students who have been through the program, um, from colleagues who have read the book. I think that, um, yes, to your question, people really do carry forward those things. I do want to mention, um, one of the primary folks focuses or foci, as they say, that I um, concentrate on is removing barriers for those I lead. That That is a really important facet, and I, I'm planning to use that in the sequel um, because it's a really important facet of my own leadership, the most important one of all. I think that people come to work or come to school to do the best job they can. I really do. Um, but sometimes barriers are in the way that they didn't cause and that impacts negatively the forward momentum. And I make it my business to remove barriers, to find a way to get around the barriers, to get over the barriers, through the barriers, under the barriers, kick the barriers out of the street, (laughs) whatever it takes to to clear the path so that people can move forward in doing the good work that they intend to do. That's that's really primary. Yeah, and I would say that, that that's something that um, I carried with me through our relationship or from our relationship moving forward. It was something that always was in my mind um, dealing with my students and, and in relationships to say, oh, what's the barrier here? Um, how can I help remove that for you um, or with you? And so we can, you can progress to that, that forward motion that you were talking about. So that, I think that really instilled in me something that I carried from, from our relationship. So before we wrap up, I have one last question. And that is, what advice would you give educational leaders looking to create a positive climate to increase teacher and student success in their schools? Well, I think there are four things that I would say. One, do your homework on leading make sure that you read the great authors on leading and make sure that you understand what that requires of you. The second one is to, um, reflecting back on an earlier part of our conversation, consider whether you are a teacher or a shepherd or both. 
and then make the most of whatever you are. There are definitely uh, reasons we need teachers who are leaders <laughs> to teach others. And there are reasons we need shepherds. And some people have both sets of skills. And I think if you understand who you are and what your skill strengths are, you can be a greater leader and you can surround yourself with people ha who have other skills that complement yours. Um, the third thing I would say is remove barriers. That's the first thing for me, but I think that you know, when people are, are becoming leaders and growing as leaders, that they have to do their homework first, understand who they are first, and then start working on removing barriers for others. And then finally, you mentioned it, Lisa, celebrate the small wins. It's so important to do that because people need to be able to celebrate to build momentum. Sometimes when you're working on a big project, right now I'm working on one, it seems overwhelming. So I've decided that I'm gonna spend an hour a day on that project and then take a break and be happy about what I got done, even though it's not finished, right? right. And I do the same thing with students. And you know, when you're working on a dissertation, it's like uh, the metaphor of eating an elephant sandwich. You have to kind of take it one bite at a time. <laughs> yes. And then each time, um, you know, somebody that I'm leading reaches a milestone, I want to bring their attention to it in whatever way I can. And for me, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that I sometimes wear a silly feather boa. And <laughs> that, that stems back to when I was a high school teacher and I was leading a program of students who wanted to become journalists. And when they would publish something, I would wear a boa to school. And everybody knew that if Sparks had on a boa, something important was happening in her classroom that day by the <laughs> students. All right, so here is the call of action today, and this one is for educational leaders. You have the power to create a positive climate in your school that can directly impact the success of your teachers and students. Consider choosing to lead with your heart and mind using resonant leadership practices. It is my hope that educational leaders will use a resonant leadership style to help create positive climates in schools across the country and increase the success of our students. Thank you, Dr. Carla Sparks, for taking the time to join me today to discuss the importance of how we train our future educational leaders. In our next episode, Dr. Livia paylor Duler will be joining me to discuss the topic of dyslexia and how her organization is helping children and families across the world. If you have a story about what's working in your schools that you'd like to share, you can email me at drlisarichardsonhassler at gmail.com or visit my website at www.drlisarhassler.com and send me a message. It is the mission of this podcast to shine light on the good in education so that it spreads, affecting positive change in schools. So let's keep working together to find solutions that focus on our students' success. 